Well, thank you, Brother Hodge, for leading us in song tonight. And thank each of you for being here this evening. In fact, thank you for staying in town. We've got an awful lot of our folks who are away on vacation and uh, preaching and doing other things right now. And uh, we're just glad to have this good assembly here tonight. We've gathered together because we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope of the world, and he's your hope if you trust in him and do his will. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus the Savior, you'll have the opportunity in just a few minutes from now to do that, to confess your faith in Jesus, to turn from sin, and to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well, I'm sure you've heard the silly story about the fellow who said, well, I don't know much about the Bible, but what I'll do is I'll just let the Bible fall open to some place and put my finger on a verse, and whatever that verse says, that's what I'll do. And someone says, well, you couldn't get into trouble doing that, could you? Well, maybe you could. Well, if lets his Bible fall open, and the verse he puts his finger on says, Judas went out and hanged himself. He says, well, that can't be right. I'll let it fall open to another place. Go thou and do likewise. And then a third time he did it, what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> well, that's a silly illustration, but it makes a valid point. Because sometimes you will see Bible teachers who will string together a bunch of unrelated scriptures, and then they come over with the conclusion, they come up with a new doctrine. And I've seen that several times over the years. And it's always done by those, those who are poorly trained Bible students. And, and it may surprise you that when questioned on this abuse of Scripture, and that's what it is, men will sometimes appeal to the Scripture to prove that it's right to string verses together that have no relation to one another. We saw that recently in a Bible study just a couple of weeks ago. Several of us were in a study with someone, and he was doing that very thing. And when questioned on it, he went to Isaiah 28 and verse 10, where it said precept upon precept, line upon line. So it's okay just to collect precepts here and there and collect a line in this place and that place and put them together. He turned to Isaiah 28.10 to validate his practice. And I will tell you, if that practice is valid, just stringing together whatever scriptures you want to come up with a doctrine, then it is impossible, I say impossible, to learn God's will from such a book of confusion. But you're better Bible students than that. I know you are. And you know that there are rules for proper Bible study. The Word of God is supposed to be handled in a right way. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Be diligent. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed. You remember the end of it? Someone was saying it over here. Rightly dividing the word of truth or handling or right the word of truth. There are wrong ways to handle the word of God and there are right ways to handle the word of God. So what I'm going to give you in the course of the next few minutes are three common sense rules for Bible study. These are common sense rules because, well, they're axiomatic. If you just think about them, they're logical and reasonable, but they're also found within the Word of God themselves. And so let's go. What's our first rule? First rule of Bible study is to respect the text. Why should you respect the text? 
because it is from the Lord. It is God who gave us the text of Scripture. We believe in the text of Scripture. You cannot make the Bible to mean just whatever you want it to mean. God means something when He speaks, and it is your duty and mine to study to determine what He meant in that text, whatever the text may be. I've already mentioned 2 Timothy 2.15, handling aright the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved unto God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, you know what it says, all Scripture is given by what? Go ahead and say it. Inspiration of God, thank you. It comes from God, and because it's from God, it ought to be respected. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, the apostle Peter talked about some people who do not respect the will of God, do not respect His Word, and he speaks of those who twist, who twist or wrestle turn the Scripture, they are untaught, they're unstable people, and they twist the Scripture to their own destruction. See, not everyone, not everyone who has a Bible respects what is in the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 to 25, the Scripture there says this about the Word of God. It says, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. The Word of God is incorruptible. It is not to be changed, and it never changes, though men may try to corrupt it and pervert it. The Word of God is incorruptible, and that Word which lives and abides forever, all flesh is as grass. The glory of man is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. This enduring Word of God then ought to be respected. So the first rule of Bible study, when you begin to study your Bible, you need to respect the text because it is from the Lord. Can we, can we say amen to that? That's just common sense, isn't it? But the Bible itself tells us to respect it. But here is a second common sense rule, and that is to respect context. Now what does context mean? Context has to do with the setting of the text. It, it's the it's the background, the place where the Scripture, the verse is found, and, and Scripture cannot be isolated from its setting. All Scripture has a context. The word context is an interesting word. It literally means with the weave. It's like a fabric that is woven together. Maybe you've got a sweater, and maybe the sweater is, is uh, woven of three different wools, one thread that is white and one that is blue and one that is red. Now, you don't pull a red thread out and say, well, now that's all there is to this sweater, this red thread. No, you've got, it fits in relation to the blue, it fits in relation to the white. The idea of context is with the weave, and you can't just isolate one verse apart from the rest of the Scripture. The context of a verse Maybe the verses just before. Someone says, I always try to read three verses before and three verses after. Well, that's okay to do that, and that'll help maybe give you a little understanding of the context, but maybe you need to see the whole chapter. And, and sometimes context involves the entire book. Sometimes context means that you've got to know something about the historical setting and the custom of the time. All of that, the Scripture fits into that very large context. And if you, if you don't respect context, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble. I always like to use the illustration of Psalm 14 and verse 1. And I ask people, did you know the Bible says there is no God? Someone says, surely it doesn't. Yeah, it does. And it's in Psalm 14, 1. 
And David is the speaker there, and David said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the words of the fool. See, it, it, it makes a difference who is speaking, doesn't it? I heard a, a teacher on television years ago teaching about salvation. And he went to verses like uh, Acts chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? And there the, the answer was given to the jailer. Then he went to Acts chapter 8 and verse 36. And he says, this man is riding along in a chariot. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And, and this preacher catches up to him. And he asks the preacher, what doth hinder me? Didn't give the entirety of the verse. Because what the man riding in the chariot asked Philip, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And this teacher was a teacher who did not believe in baptism. And so he didn't want to give the whole verse, you see. He didn't pay attention to the context. What did all the verse say? You see how important context is? Context could involve an entire chapter, a whole book. It may call upon us to consider any number of factors, but respect in the context it, it forces us to ask a question, and that is, who is speaking? Now, we've been reading through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and we saw God's command to Adam, and Adam was supposed to teach his wife Eve that we're not to eat of this tree, this one tree in the garden. In the day we eat of it, we'll surely die. Did you know the Bible says you will not surely die? Yeah, but who's speaking? I know it says that. It is the lying devil who says to Eve, you will not surely die. You've got to pay attention to who it is that's speaking. And just like we gave the reference from Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said, David is speaking, but he's quoting the fool. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You always got to pay attention to who is speaking. Then you've got to pay attention to who is being spoken to. I know what none of you are doing. I know you're not building an ark in your backyard. But did you know the Bible says, build yourself an ark out of gopher wood? It says that. It says that in Genesis 6, 14. But brother, you know that you're not supposed to be building an ark. God didn't give that command to you. Who is spoken to in that text? Even our little children know that God spoke those words to Noah. And so some things you see in the Bible don't apply to you. They were maybe spoken to someone else and had a limited application to that person and were not given to the whole human race. And let me give you another example of that uh, that will really help you in studying the Bible. John chapter 14, verse 26. This is Jesus the night before he died. He is still in the upper room with his apostles. And he is going, he's telling them, I'm going away. I'm going to die but I'm going to be raised from the dead, then I'm going to ascend back to the Father. But I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. And here is what the Holy Spirit will do. Act, John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. This passage has limitation in and of itself. It's limited to those men who were with Jesus for the three and a half years and who were apostles. He says the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of all the things that I said to you. And people today are pulling this out of context and says, well, now the Holy Spirit reminds me of everything. Well, I challenge that. And if you point to this verse, this is a verse that applied to the apostles and does not have an application directly to you. And so we need to pay attention. Who's speaking? 
Who's spoken to? That's context, brothers and sisters, context. Who is speaking? Who's spoken to? What's the setting of the text? Now, when men bring up Isaiah 28 and verse 10, where it says precept upon precept, well, it's okay. We just stack one commandment on top of another and line upon line, here a little, there a little. We'll just grab Scripture from all over, and we'll put together our doctrine. I have yet to see anyone who used that to support their practice who had any idea of the context of that verse. Now, in just a minute, we're going to look at the context. But there's a third rule that we've got to see first. Okay, three rules, common sense. One, respect the text because it's from God. Two, respect context. That's the setting in which the text is found. But number three, respect all text. And what do we mean when we say that? Well, there may be other texts in other places that address the same topic. And so if we find a, a text that addresses a particular topic, maybe that text doesn't tell you everything you need to know about that topic. Maybe we need to consider some other verses in some other places. When Elmer Moore was here some 30-plus years ago doing some teaching on Bible study, he called it the remote text. Text in other places. Remote means distant. Text in other places, but addressing the very same topic. And we understand that all the truth on a subject is not necessarily found in one scripture. And when you see John 3.16 abused, you're understanding what I'm saying here. John 3.16, a, a, a preacher gets up on TV or in the pulpit, and he says, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, he might, that everyone who believes might have eternal life. And so there it is. There's salvation. It's for everyone who believes, and they close the Bible at that point. Belief is all there is to salvation. That's it. Nothing more. Well, now, are there any other verses that have something to say about salvation? You see, you've got to respect all the text on a topic, and you do not isolate one passage to the exclusion of other passages. Other passages may have bearing on that same topic. You know, the devil was was one who disrespected texts like that. If you look in your Bible in Matthew chapter 4, here the devil is talking to Jesus. This is the temptation of Jesus. And you have here uh, this temptation where he says in verse 6, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... Satan is quoting Scripture. Did you know the devil knows Scripture? And he quotes Scripture. And he will quote Scripture to mislead people. The devil said... He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you as your foot against a stone. Both of those verses are from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And so, throw yourself down from the temple, the devil says to Jesus. But look at the response of Jesus. Jesus said to him, it is written again. That word again is the key to understanding what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, there's more to bear on this subject than just these two verses that you have given me. The, the 20th century New Testament says, the Scripture says, Scripture also says. Here's another verse that has to do with it. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The New American Standard Bible says, on the other hand, Yes, this is what the Scripture says in Psalm 91, but on the other hand, here's another Scripture that has bearing on what you're telling me to do. 
But no matter which translation, the fact is there was more to consider than just this text which Satan brought up. You have to respect all the text. But it is a technique of false teacher to isolate one passage to the exclusion of others. It's done all the time. And I would hope that you would find that the teachers at Dallin Road, whether it's Max, who's now in his 50th year of preaching, or whether it's Hunter, who's in a summer program, whether it's Brother David, Brother Reuben, or your Bible class teacher, or someone who teaches during the uh, communion service, as Brother Baker did tonight, I hope that you will find that your teachers at Dallin Road do not, do not isolate one passage to the exclusion of others. We strive to respect Scripture, and we do not teach just whatever we want. I recognize that there are teachers out in the world and the churches of men. They teach whatever they want to teach, and they make the Scripture to say whatever they want it to say. One of the things that makes gospel preachers different is that we do not do that. And if we do it, we ought to be called into question. And if in the course of the study tonight, if I misuse Scripture by isolating one passage to the exclusion of others, or if I deny the context of a verse, you need to call me to question tonight. Respect. Respect the text. Respect context. Respect all the texts. Now, let's see if we can apply what we've learned to Isaiah chapter 28. First of all, we got to talk about respecting the text, don't we? Isaiah was a prophet who spoke from God. Someone says, how do you know? Well, because Jesus acknowledged him. Isaiah was a true prophet of God. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read a verse here where Jesus calls, where the Matthew text here calls Isaiah a prophet. Jesus answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? This is Jesus speaking. He calls Isaiah a prophet. That's good enough for me. If Jesus calls him a prophet, then what he spoke, what Isaiah spoke, was what came from God. So we have to respect Isaiah 28. Isaiah prophesied of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. All over the New Testament, Isaiah is acknowledged as a prophet of God. And so there's no question about that. What I'm simply saying is this. All who study Isaiah, whether it's chapter 1 or chapter 28 or chapter 66, all who study Isaiah must respect the text holding it in high esteem above the writings or words of men. Okay, so we respect the text from Isaiah. Secondly, we must respect the context of Isaiah. What is chapter 28 about? Isaiah 28, what's it about? In fact, what is the book of Isaiah about? What is the context of the book? Isaiah prophesied at the time of the divided kingdom. He began his work around 735 B.C. When you read from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it mentions some kings of Judah who were alive during the time when Isaiah's ministry took place. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. His focus is going to be upon the southern kingdom of Judah and particularly the city of, Je of Jerusalem. 
This is what I saw, he said, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uzziah, this puts, this puts Isaiah about 735 B.C. And his primary message was for Judah. However, he also spoke of judgment that was going to come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, if you remember back in the time of King Solomon, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided in, into two parts. There was the northern part that continued to be called Israel, the northern kingdom, which was headed by what king? Who was the king in the north who introduced the idolatry at Dan and Bethel? Do you remember his name? Jeroboam, thank you. Jeroboam. What tribe was Jeroboam from? Does anybody know? From the tribe of Ephraim. I think I heard someone say it. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He introduced idolatry into the land. So the, the kingdom was divided, northern kingdom of Israel. But in the south, you've got Judah and Benjamin. And that's known as the southern kingdom or just the kingdom of Judah. And that continued on with uh, David and Solomon's line. So he has a message for Judah primarily, but he's going to first speak here in our chapter, in chapter 28, he's going to first speak of the northern kingdom, that judgment is going to come upon the northern kingdom. Let's look at it together. Chapter 28, I'm going to read the first four verses. And you notice here that he's going to use the name Ephraim. Ephraim is found twice. Ephraim, yeah, that's the tribe that Jeroboam came from. And sometimes here in the north, they were simply called Ephraim because that was the kingly tribe. Woe to the crown of pride, says chapter 28 and verse 1, to the drunkards of Ephraim. You're getting an idea here what some of the problems were? Drunken pride, both of those words are found in that opening. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. That word verdant means green, lush, luxurious, fruitful valleys. When Brother Clarence and I were in Israel in the year 2000, we stood on Ahab's, at the, stop, at the top of Ahab's palace. Remember where Jezebel died? And we could see the valley of Jezreel running off to the north. What a beautiful, verdant, green, lush valley that was. And Samaria, <laughs> a beautiful city, the kingly city. But he says, woe to that whose glorious beauty is like a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. So Samaria, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is going to be overrun like a flood. Verse 3, the crown of pride. The drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. Who's going to trample them underfoot? Why, it's going to be the Assyrian army. The, the Assyrian invaders are going to come. They're going to overrun the land, and they're going to take the people of the land captive off into Assyria. Verse 4, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, and he eats it up while it's still in his hand. What is the idea there? If you've got the ESV or the New American Standard Bible, it speaks of the first figs before the summer, before the summer fruit. I, 
recently in my class, we were talking about that fig tree that Jesus cursed when he came to it, and there, was, there were no figs on the tree. It was not yet the time of figs, but it was the spring of the year when the fig trees have what's called the breba. It's a little small fig that grows on last year's growth. These are small. You pluck one off and you stick it in your mouth. You eat it just like it is. One bite. And that's what he's saying here about Samaria. These Assyrians are going to come down and they're going to devour you quickly like a man who's got a piece of fruit in his hand and he eats it. And so what's going to happen? Judgment was coming. It's going to be from the land of the north. In chapter 10 and verse number 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. God calls Assyria the rod of his anger, and he's going to use it to punish the northern kingdom. There's much more to be said about that. But as we continue in the text, ah, Judah, the southern kingdom, it's going to be left as a remnant. The southern kingdom will be preserved. Oh, they will be hurt by Assyria, but they're going to stand. And Assyria will be turned back. They would be left as a remnant, and you know what they would do? The southern kingdom would give glory to God because they were preserved from the Assyrians. Look at verses 5 and 6. That's what it's saying. In verses 5 and 6, In that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty to, to the remnant of his people, the people who are left, the people in the southern kingdom. God will be glory to that remnant, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And so the Assyrians are going to be turned back, and the people in the south would give glory to God. But I will tell you, my friends, all was not well. Because the people of the south were only a couple of steps behind the people of the north. They, too, were going deeper and deeper into idolatry, and they, too, were guilty of drunken pride. It was happening. Look at the next verses. In verses 7 and 8, it says, But they also, this remnant, the people of the south, they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. Who? Who? Which, which among them? Why, he says, the priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. What an ugly picture that is. Vomiting, filthy drunkenness. That's how, the, that's how these leaders, the prophets and priests in the south, who were spared from the Assyrians. That's, what, that's how they're described. The picture here is one of shame and is disgrace. These prophets and priests stumbled because of their consumption of wine, because of their intoxication. And what did these men do? These intoxicated priests and prophets, what did they do? What did they have to say? Verse number 9 and verse number 10. Whom will he teach knowledge? They're talking about Isaiah. Here's what these drunken priests, these intoxicated prophets, here's what they have to say about Isaiah. Whom will he teach knowledge and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk. He's treating us like babies. Those just drawn from the breast. 
For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Who does Isaiah think he is that he can teach us? We're not children. What does verse 10 contain? Isaiah 28.10, precept upon precept, line upon line. These are the words of the mocking priests and prophets who spoke against Isaiah. This is not some formula for Bible study of stringing a bunch of passages together and coming up with some flaky doctrine. Verse 10 is about their mocking words. They were bored, bored silly with hearing Isaiah. These words have nothing to do with how to study God's Word. They are statements of men who refuse God's Word. But God has more to say. Since you don't want to hear Isaiah, God says, I'm going to speak to you in another way. Verse 11, for with stammering lips and another tongue, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, but they would not hear. The words, ladies and gentlemen, of verses 9 and 10 are the words of those who would not hear the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wanted to give them rest. God's word, God's message to the people was, if you'll turn back to me, I will give you rest from your enemies. But you won't listen. And so now I'm going to speak to you in another way with stammering lips and another tongue. I'm going to speak to you. Verse 13. The word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's how they regarded the word of God. They didn't want to hear any more of it. I heard a lady one time say, if I hear any more on that Bible topic, I think I'm going to get sick at my stomach. I don't want to hear any more. And sometimes people are that very way. And people who speak like that, Isaiah says at the end of verse 13, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. So God said, with stammering lips and another tongue, he would speak to this people. How would that be? How would God speak to the people with another tongue, with stammering lips? The people of Judah are going to hear the barbaric dialect, the barbaric language of foreign invaders. That's how. First, they're going to hear from the Assyrians, but God will deliver them from the Assyrians, but they won't listen. And so now God says, I'm going to send another people against you. Stammering lips, another tongue. It'll be the language of the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come against the southern kingdom. And just like the northern kingdom was carried off in 722 B.C., just over 100 years later, the southern kingdom will be carried off also. Why? God says, I offered them rest, but they would not hear. God calls these mockers who spoke against Isaiah scornful men. Look at the next verses, verses 14 and 15, and we'll stop there. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we are in agreement. 
when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. These men said, hey, nothing can happen to us. We've made an agreement with death. We're not going to die. Well, who gave you the right to make an agreement with death that you would override and overrule the word of God? Those who ruled Jerusalem believed that they were untouchable and that their lies would protect them from judgment. What about the remote text? What about respecting all text? I'll just say this. If you want to learn more about such judgments, turn to any of the prophets. Turn to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, and listen to how much this sounds like what was said in Isaiah's time. Jeremiah chapter 6 and, and verse number 15. Jeremiah 6, 15 and 16. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they will be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the way. And see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest unto your souls. The same thing as the message of Isaiah. Ask for God's way. Do God's will. And you will find rest for your soul, he says. And what did the people say? At the end of verse 16. But they said, we will not. No. We're not going to do God's will. The same thing you see over in Isaiah chapter 28. And that's only one example. What I'm saying is that all the prophets agree to this. When I, when I have addressed the judgment of Isaiah 28, I've not isolated some chapter from the rest of the book of Isaiah or the rest of the Old Testament. But Jeremiah had more to say. Yes, he said the people would not do God's will. But Jeremiah had more to say in Jeremiah chapter 25. In Jeremiah 25, in verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah said the whole land is going to be judged. This whole land, this is Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And what would happen when God punishes the land of Babylon? He says to his people, you can go back home now. So the captivity was only 70 years. Restoration was coming. What do you take home from tonight's study? First, respect. Respect God's word. Respect the text. Respect context. Respect all text. And brothers and sisters, if we do not have respect for the Word of God, then we have nothing at all. Our faith is empty. Our religion is valueless. We respect God's Word. But secondly, don't fall into the trap that Jerusalem fell into. They were bored with God's Word. How many times do we have to hear all this from Isaiah about judgment that's coming? People who love God, they love and appreciate the hearing of God's Word. And if you love and appreciate God's Word, then you love to hear it. And it will be a blessing to you. You know what God's desire was for these people? It was to bless them and give them rest. That's what Isaiah 28 and verse 12 said. 
that this message of Isaiah was designed to give to the people rest, rest for the weary soul, rest for the troubled heart, rest for those who were facing judgment if they would turn to God. And you know what God does? He offers the very same thing today. Rest for the weary soul. And maybe there's someone here tonight that says, that's what I need. I'm that weary soul. And I've never confessed Jesus as the Son of God. Then it's time you did that. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. If you haven't done that, if you haven't responded to Jesus, now is the time to do that. Confess his, confess his name, be baptized into him. Come on now while we stand and sing. Come now, please.